0: Welcome again to our study in Paul's Epistle to the Philippians. We are in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians this evening, and we're going to begin with verse 5. We got through the first four verses the last couple of times together. So glad you're here with us, and let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you again for the privilege of having your word so readily available to us. We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that we have to speak openly. Uh, about your word to read it together to study it together and then to apply it to our individual lives in our homes in our communities and so forth and so on lord we thank you that your word is so uh, so applicable it's so real for our lives and we thank you we know that your wisdom has been transmitted through your word and we thank you that you have preserved it for us So, Lord, I pray that as we study these verses tonight uh, that were written originally by the Apostle Paul to the communities in Philippi, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to understand and to apply the truths, the ever-relevant truths of your Word to our own situations even in our modern world. We thank you, Lord, that your Word is so well put together so that it touches our lives regardless of where we live in our cultures or uh, in our time we thank you father for that and we ask by your spirit that you would open our hearts and our minds to know your word and to apply it to our lives both in our individual lives our homes as well as in our communities and we thank you for this in yeshua's name amen i'm going to be reading uh, chapter two as is our custom we always read the whole chapter and i do that in hopes of keeping the context of each of the sections that we study in uh, in place so that the context helps us understand the whole so here is philippians 2 in the new american standard bible therefore if there is any encouragement in messiah if there is any consolation of love if there is any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and compassion Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent, on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of god above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of messiah i will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition." For i have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare for they all seek after their own interests not those of messiah yeshua but you know of his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father therefore i hope to send him immediately as soon as i see how things go with me and i trust in the lord that i myself also will be coming shortly but I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed, he was sick even to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So we're going to begin with verse 5 of chapter 2 and we come here now into what has been called as we'll see here in the notes the hymn of Christ or the hymn of Messiah. It is clearly written in such a way as though it could be sung or it's very very carefully uh, uh, made so that it it fits in terms of how the words are put together. Uh, I think if there is any section in the writings of Paul that makes so amply clear the eternal divine deity of our Savior Yeshua, it is this passage, and a great deal has been written on it. I, uh, I could have written much, much more, but... I tried to give the general overview, as I think is an important thing for us to do in a commentary like this. I did have one book that that I have in my library that's called A Hymn of Christ. It looks like this, and uh, counting all of the indices and everything, it is 372 pages just on these verses, chapter Two verses 5 through 11 so you can see that there has been a lot of ink spilled on this passage in terms of writing and in terms of uh, conflicts between theologians what does it mean what does it say how do we understand this and of course the early debates over the deity of Yeshua is Yeshua truly the eternal God who created this world Is he in the mystery of it all, one with the Father and one with the Spirit, so that there is an infinite unity, and yet there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? The answer to that is absolutely yes, and the Scriptures are very clear on this. The debates that have gone on throughout the centuries about the so-called Trinity or the oneness of God in the Godhead being of Father, Son, and Spirit is because it is beyond our ability to entirely explain it to our own human satisfaction. And yet, is it not like God to reveal Himself as the one who cannot be fully explained? If we could fully explain Him, then we would be on His level, but we are not. He is the Creator. We are the Created. And so, this is the crux of the passage. We're not going to make it all the way through. We're going to maybe get into verse 7 tonight. But as we go along in these verses, I just challenge you to glory in the mystery that God has come in the flesh, Yeshua. And yet, He has taken on humanity. He is fully God and fully man and we can't fully understand that but it's at the heart and core of our faith for if he is not fully divine then he ought not to be worshipped and yet the scriptures are clear that even the angels give him worship and all humanity will kneel to him ultimately well Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Having exhorted the Philippian community to strive for unity by living humbly with each other, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, the phrase that we have in the earlier verses here, Paul now brings forward the greatest and most important example of humility in serving others. And this, of course, is Yeshua himself. Is it not our goal or to be our goal, to be like Him? Are we not to pattern our thoughts and our life and our hopes and our dreams after who He is and come to know Him and we're to walk in His footsteps? Isn't that what it means, to walk in someone's footsteps, to be like them? And if there's the greatest example in all of eternity of what it means to hold others more important than yourself, the ultimate example is yeshua himself he gave up the bliss and the beauty and the wonder of eternity with the father and with the angelic house and with the spirit of god all without any sin having entered into the whole of the universe and yet when sin came in he humbled himself and he came in flesh that he might die for those who would be his and pay the penalty of their sin is that not the greatest example of utter humility well that's what paul means when he says have this attitude in yourselves the hymn of christ it's called for it extols the very essence of yeshua as the victorious messiah and savior of his people so these verses philippians 2 5 through 11 have as had as much written about them as perhaps any portion of scripture of this size and why because it is a crux it is a very central central part of our faith there is no need as some commentators contend to question the pauline authorship of these verses if you look in the uh, in the commentaries you're going to see a lot of uh, words have been written on whether or not this is actually something Paul wrote because it is hymnic so did he just take something that was already in existence and incorporate it in his letter to uh, the Philippians I don't think so and most evangelical commentators don't think so either this is Paul at his best led by the spirit carried along by him giving us these deep and important words so carried along by the Ruach HaKodesh, Paul penned this inspired text and it surely fits perfectly in the flow of the epistle and in the very emphasis of unity through humble service to one another within the body of Messiah. I just have to say this as well as we long to obey and to give honor to Yeshua one of the great ways that we can do this is to strive for unity within our local communities. This means we have to learn to forgive. This means we have to learn to overlook faults because we all have them. We need to help each other, care for each other, encourage each other, and ultimately not leave one another over selfish issues. That is the heart of this passage of Philippians 2, and in a way it's the heart of the whole book. So, how are we to model ourselves or to model ourselves after Yeshua, who did not consider himself but gave himself up for others? When Paul writes of this attitude, let this attitude be in you, he is referring to the very person of Yeshua as the believer's example. For having focused on encouragement in Messiah, and the consolation of love, and the fellowship of the Ruach, and the affection and compassion that he speaks of in the first four verses that ought to characterize relationships within the believing community, he now gives us the glorious picture of the greatest example of humility and service to others in the self-sacrifice of Yeshua himself. That seems obvious, doesn't it, to you? For Yeshua is the ultimate example of humble service. Why is he the ultimate example? Because he is infinitely righteous and yet gave himself for those who were marked by sin and unrighteousness. Surely he is the only one who is qualified and able to bring sinners into the realm of righteousness so that they may live in this life in union with God himself and are enabled by God's grace in Yeshua to spend all eternity in his shalom and majesty we should never lose sight of the ultimate goal that each one of us have and that is to be forever with the lord and we're to comfort one another with that thought we're to serve one another with that thought that we will spend eternity together And we must take on the mind, the attitude, have this attitude in you, Paul says, even as it is in Yeshua. But in order to accomplish their redemption, Yeshua had to offer himself as the one bearing their sin, and therefore the divine punishment for their sin. Yeshua, therefore, is the quintessential example of love to those who deserve the righteous wrath of God. Oh that we would learn how to love one another in truth, and recognize how important we are for one another. Oh, some may say, "Well, I don't think I'm important at all, or I could care less about that person or that person." That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be that different. We're to take the same mind of Yeshua, and considers others more important than ourselves. The Greek word translated by the NESB as attitude when it says have this attitude in yourselves is the Greek phroneo to think to give careful consideration to something to set one's mind on something or be intent on something perhaps the modern English mindset captures the sense of the Greek a bit better than attitude now we can say you have a good attitude you have a bad attitude but it's more than just the attitude that you have by way of expressing things now and again Mindset tends, I think, to be more broad. The term attitude tends to denote one's perspective that changes given the current circumstances, while mindset tends to denote an overall general aspect from which one views and reacts to circumstances encountered in life. Do we have this working definition of how we're to act toward one another? That's the heart and soul of this phrase. Let this attitude know. Let this mindset be yours. Let it pervade all aspects of your life that others are more important than yourself. This is a true expression of love as God intends it. He says, have this attitude in yourselves. This is plural, obviously. Yourselves. Obviously, Paul is addressing his words to the Philippian community as a whole. Thus this phrase should be understood as among you, that is, in your community relationships. We could use the more southern expression, in y'all. <laughs> all of you should have, strive to have this attitude. Everyone who makes up a given local community of believers are to strive to have this as a primary perspective, that is, to regard one another as more important than yourselves now don't get me wrong i understand and recognize that that's difficult (laughs) that is truly difficult why because to consider others more important than oneself is to allow oneself to be put in second place rather than first place and what is it that our sinful flesh always strives for it's for me for myself i need it before anybody else does kind of reminds me when I used to go to auctions <laughs> and people were bidding on certain items and boy were they trying their best to uh to get the win it was all about them winning well maybe that's what an auction is all about but in life that's not the way it should be for us who are believers in Yeshua it is far too easy to point fingers and tell others about their shortcomings than it is to take a genuine inventory of one's own failures in loving others as the scriptures teach us to do once again these inspired words of paul remind us that each person within the community must make it their top priority to submit to the will of the ruach the holy spirit and to set themselves to walk in obedience to the clear teaching of the scriptures which is to regard one another as more important than yourselves Yes, well, there isn't one of us that don't struggle with that at times. Especially when we have people within our community that just rub us the wrong way. But you know, one of the things that we should train ourselves to do is when we find these kinds of people or come in contact with them or they're part of our community or small group or whatever, we ought to remind ourselves that this is a signal of the need that they have. Can we help them? Not first by reprimanding them but first by showing them that that we care. They'll listen to us if they know that we care about them. It may take time, but this is what God wants us to do. So he says, have this attitude in you, which also was in Messiah Yeshua. The very perspective that is to characterize the life of each believer within the community of faith, that is, to regard one another as more important than yourselves, is presented to us in the most extreme fashion by yeshua himself for being himself infinitely holy yet humbling himself by taking upon himself our sin and undergoing the punishment due to us he stands as the greatest and most perfect example of humility driven by love to enable those for whom he died to gain eternal life enjoyed in unending joy and fellowship with him It is his love that changes us, is it not? Of course it is. And when we come to experience and recognize his love, that changes us. Paul goes on to say who, speaking of Yeshua, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The translation of the Greek in this opening stanza is notoriously difficult. The primary issues relate to the words morphe, translated form. He existed in the form of God by many English translations. Harpagmos, which is something valuable and therefore guarded, held onto, or grasped. And then finally, Isa, which means equal, equal to God. So the, the, the words that I have highlighted are he existed in the form of God, and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The equality to be grasped, to be held on to. The first thing that we should note is the manner in which the first part of the hymn, that is verses 6 through 8, is grammatically structured. This is why so many recognize that it, it sounds like, like a poem that could be sung or uh, could be remembered because it's so well put together. Well, when we see how it is put together, this will aid us greatly in understanding the overall meaning. The grammatical structure revolves around the use of participles. Okay, now we're getting into language here. What are participles? In English they're ing words. It means an action that's ongoing, generally in English. I'm sweeping the floor. I'm cleaning the oven, and so forth. It means it's a process. It's something that's ongoing. So it revolves around the use of participles and finite verbs, just regular verbs. I cleaned, I swept, I walked, and so forth, and the manner in which they are coordinated. The following outline will give uh, will be the easiest method of describing the structure. So he says being, which is a present participle, who being in the very nature of God. It doesn't say who was. It doesn't say who will be. It is an unending present participle, which means ongoing action which has no beginning and no ending, at least in this context. So, always being in the very nature of God, he first of all did not regard, which is an aorist indicative, something that is more point in time, an action that's finished. He did not regard equality with god as something to be grasped but then he poured himself out and here again it's an aorist indicative meaning that he he chose he agreed he obeyed in this one time to become man to take upon himself the form of a servant now we have the three things that related to his pouring out Taking the nature of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being recognized as a human, he didn't walk around with a halo flashing over him he didn't he, he you wouldn't have known by his outward appearance as isaiah 53 tells us there was nothing in his appearance that would have uh, drawn people to him necessarily he wasn't uh, just uh, s- some person that stood out from all the rest no he was born in the likeness of mankind the whole incarnation is just one of the most profound mysteries and yet it is so so real and so central to all that we are in our faith so he poured himself out how by these three things taking the nature of a bond slave being born in the likeness of man and being recognized as a human he took upon himself finiteness as it were himself being eternal in both directions without beginning and without end and then how else did he uh, bring about the salvation by humbling himself and how does he humble himself in the deepest of ways becoming which is an aorist participle now that means that it happens once for all he was born as a child in this world one time but it goes on to have an ongoing reality becoming obedient to death that is death on the cross he died and died only once and he will never die again That's why it's an aorist. Aorist talks about action that generally is completed. So maybe that's kind of an outline that you can kind of understand these whole verses 5 through 11. What we glean from this grammatical structure is significant. The opening present participle, who being in the form of God, highlights the fact that his being in the very nature of God did not have a beginning it doesn't say he became, or he was, or he will be. No, it was a, it, it, it is a, an ongoing reality, and it's present. The hymn begins with Yeshua always being in the very nature of God. In contrast, the following participles are all aorist, meaning that they had a beginning point. At a point in time, Yeshua took, was born, was recognized, and became before that he had no becoming because he always was there's no way of getting around this although i know that this text has been argued from the early centuries on and still is today but if one is willing to be honest with the text itself and to receive it as god has given it to us it is very clear that there's that he has no beginning he always has been in the form or in the very nature of or however you want to understand that term we'll look at it moreover the aorist participles describe the manner in which the action of the two aorist indicatives poured himself out and humbled himself was carried out he poured himself out by taking being born and being recognized he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death therefore the grammatical structure itself helps us understand the manner in which the voluntary humility of the Incarnation took place. Likewise, the aorist participles, which speak to a point of time in history, each having a beginning, are contrasted with the present participle that opens the hymn, describing the existence of Yeshua, which had no beginning. He always was one with the Father and the Spirit. In our English, to say that Yeshua was in the form of God makes it sound as though he was not himself divine, but simply had the form of divinity. But the word morphe does not have this sense. An, uh, an older commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, argues that morphe is in direct contrast to the word schema of the next verse translated likeness. He concluded that while schema referred to what is observed and outward, Morphe denotes that which is intrinsic and essential. Thus, the word Morphe belongs to a group of words which describe God not as he is in himself, but as he is to an observer. To an angel, for example, God has a form, an image, a likeness, and a glory. He makes himself accessible in his form. What the New Testament does is to insist that this form that we have in our verse, the image and glory, belong to messiah yeshua in exactly the same way and to the same degree as they do to god the father he is god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god john 1 1 and he has the image and the glory and the likeness and the form that go along with it the morphe the form is not the essence but it's but it presupposes the essence and truly and fully expresses the the being which underlies it. In other words, we could take the idea of form to mean he showed himself to be God. He did what only God could do. In this regard, the NIV translation has caught the meaning, who being in very nature God, That's that's a good translation, did not consider equality with god something to be grasped thus when paul writes that yeshua was in morphe of god he intends us to understand that yeshua shared in every way all of the divine attributes by which god is known one writer has put it this way he possessed all the majesty of deity performed all its functions and enjoyed all its prerogatives he was adored by his father and worshipped by the angels he was invulnerable to pain frustration and embarrassment he existed in unclouded serenity his supremacy was total his satisfaction complete his blessedness perfect such a condition was not something he had secured by effort (laughs) he didn't win it he didn't he didn't uh, pay for it no it was who he is it was the way things were and had always been and there was no reason why they should change But, of course, things did change. And this is at the very heart of the Christological mystery. The second part of this opening stanza, second part of verse 6, describes why. Messiah did not insist on his rights. This brings us to the word apagmos. Yeshua did not consider the glory and majesty of his divine equality with the Father as something to be grasped. This presupposes that Yeshua already had an equality with the Father, right? The way it's written. And this is what the text states. He did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped. He had every right to be recognized for who he is. And even if willing to come to earth, he could have required that his coming be with a blaze of fire and trumpet blast, as at Mount Sinai, or with the momentary glory that shone forth on the Mount of Transfiguration. He could have required that he come with the aid of myriads of angels to attend his every need. These were his rights. But being in the very nature of God, he did not insist upon these rights. Isn't that amazing? When you stop to think about what our Savior did for us and is doing for us, when you stop to think of who he is and what he commands, And the power that he has. And then he yielded himself to sinful men. To put him on a cross. Isn't this the perfect uh, text to have in our hearts and minds. As we come to celebrating Passover. The very time of our exodus from the slavery of sin. And to consider the fact that one day we will see him just as he is well we often read this opening stanza as setting up a contrast that although Messiah was God he did not insist upon the exercise of his divine rights but there is another way to read this text precisely because he was in the very nature of God he recognized equality with God as a matter not of getting but of giving isn't that one of the central attributes of God as he has revealed himself Why did he create the universe? Did he have any need of it? No. Did he need more glory than he already had? No. Why? Because he's infinite in his glory. The only thing we can say is that he desired to have those who would be his and show them and give them his love, his glory, his compassion, and himself one writer mccleod has noted the parallel to john thirteen three and following where we read yeshua knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from god and was going back to god got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel he girded himself have you ever considered that section just to be a very mini expression and example of his whole incarnation yes he is the servant of the lord in the ultimate sense and when israel is said to be god's servant what was Israel to do to look forward to this coming one who would be the quintessential model of servanthood and rather what did israel do as a nation they rejected him but there's coming a time when israel will know what is right god will open their eyes and take away the blindness and give to them the spirit of repentance so here we have precisely the same motif Yeshua fully aware of his divine prerogatives girds himself to perform the most servile act that of washing the feet of his disciples the conclusion to which this leads us is that the impulse to serve lies at the very heart of deity god is not self-centered and self-absorbed as love he is pure altruism looking not on or at his own things but at the things of others from this point of view the idea of kenosis the greek word meaning to empty in verse 7 which we're coming to now is revolutionary for our understanding of god it is his very form to forego his rights and so we come to verse 7 but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here we encounter the word keno, from which the noun kenos is derived and from which the theological term kenosis has sprung. So, if you've ever dealt with the controversies of the kenosis theory, what does Paul mean that he emptied himself? Did he cease for a while becoming God? Well, that's impossible. God cannot cease being who he is. Because who he is is the very definition of God. God does not change. He remains God at all times. So the kenosis. It was the big controversy in the early uh, centuries of the emerging Christian church. Was Yeshua to be worshipped? Was he equal in terms of his deity with the Father and with the Spirit? It was a huge debate. Ultimately, the primary aspect of the Christian church cited on the right of the Scriptures that indeed he is, in the mystery of it all, one with the Father and the Spirit, and the three are one. There is one and only one God. The Father had no beginning, the Son had no beginning, the Spirit had no beginning and no ending. They are eternal in both directions. This is what is one of the main attributes of God himself. So when Paul says, but he emptied himself, what does it mean? Well, he goes on to tell us in the verse, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself of what? And I'm giving you the answer at the very beginning. He emptied himself of the outward appearance, the outward glory he took upon himself the form of a bondservant and became in the likeness of men. He didn't lose his glory. He simply willed that it not be seen while he was here, except in some special times, like on the mountain and other places. And, of course, in his miracles, people recognized that he was someone that was unlike any other. And yet he was truly man as well as truly God and is truly man and truly God. The verb means to empty or to deprive and the noun to be without something or empty. Attempting to decipher what Paul meant that Yeshua emptied himself has captivated scholars since the early centuries and has filled countless pages of commentary and theological writings. It is this phrase that became one of the major dividing points in the early Christological debates and it continues to do so to this very day but we should be very careful about placing too much emphasis upon a single word, such as kano'o, to empty, in a poetic or hymnic text. The meaning of our text, while surely contained in the words themselves, is to be found in the whole, not in the parts. Moreover, the precise meaning of kano'o is somewhat elusive. Hawthorne translates the phrase, on the contrary, he poured himself out, noting that the opening but, al, or Allah in its full form, marks a strong contrastive to the former verse yeshua shared equality with god but rather than holding on to his exalted position he poured himself out for the sake of sinners so you can see when it means he poured himself out it means that he was willing to, to not have himself seen physically and in a way that others would know that he was divine he took upon himself flesh he looked like a common man the pronoun himself, huton, comes before the verb and is therefore emphatic. But he himself he poured out, emphasizing the voluntary nature of the act. Yeshua willingly left the glory of his divine position for the humility of the incarnation. That's what he poured out. He poured out the glory. Was he still glorious? Yes. But was it hidden? from mankind in general yes in other words he did not hold on to the necessity that everyone would know who he was he rather humbled himself that's part of what this kenosis means those who have felt the necessity to ask the question of what did yeshua empty himself have offered various answers some have said of his glory others of his independent exercise of authority. In other words, he was entirely subject to uh, the will and the leading of the Father and the Spirit. Or three, of the prerogatives of deity. Or four, of the insignia of majesty, that he didn't come out with something that proved that he was God. And number five, of the relative attributes of uh, deity, that is omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and so forth and six of being equal with god but the question itself flows from the creedal wars of the early centuries and the systematic theologies that ensued as hawthorne notes the term kenosis is a way to account for the human jesus in the light of his existence in the divine realm and his becoming human it is concerned with problems that have defied final resolution because the modern interpreter is encumbered with the dogmatic creedal matters of the centuries and I don't think that's the whole story or the whole answer, but it certainly he has it right. In other words, if you choose one or the other, you put yourself in a given camp. Okay, and so you're, you're trying not to be in this camp, but be in this camp. And all of that becomes part of how we try to understand what did he empty himself of? When we look at the hymn as a whole, the picture, I think, is clear, even if the details are not. Yeshua himself, equal with God left the realm of divine glory and took something to himself which he formerly did not have the form of a bondservant and the likeness of men the emptying or pouring out does not describe a metamorphosis of being but a radical change of position thus the niv and the esv which have made himself nothing is not only a paraphrase but a bad one at that in my opinion he didn't make himself nothing nor does the phrase bring into view a discarding of divine substances, if we can use that term, or essences, or anything of the sort. He didn't give up anything by way of his divinity. He simply shrouded it with humanity, and then chose not to show it to everyone. Rather, the picture presented here is the same given in Second Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What did he give up? He gave up the fact that had he come without giving anything up, everyone would have known immediately who he was. Would they have believed in him? Well, in order to give himself for the price of paying for the sins of those who would be his, he had to be a one of us. He had to die as a human dies. And he had to be resurrected. Now, granted, he did on the third day. But there's an ultimate resurrection, is there not? Of course there is. He had to, in every way, take upon himself our humanity in order to stand in the place that he could represent us calvin gives us this conclusion to the question of what is meant by yeshua emptying himself it is also asked secondly how he can be said to be emptied while he nevertheless invariably proved himself by miracles and excellencies to be the son of god and in whom in whom as john testifies there was always to be seen a glory worthy of the son of god as in john 1 we behold his glory I answer that the abasement of the flesh was was notwithstanding like a veil by which His divine majesty was concealed. On this account, He did not wish that His transfiguration should be made public until after His resurrection. And when He perceives that the hour of His death is approaching, He then says, Father, glorify Thy Son. Hence, too, Paul teaches elsewhere that He was declared to be the Son of God by means of His resurrection. So, the humanity veiled the outward expression of his divinity and that was necessary if he was going to be our substitute. It is clear that though our faith in God is surely reasonable, for the creation itself gives clear evidence of God's existence right? Paul says that the unbelievers are without excuse for even the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork Yet, ultimately, the infinite greatness of God exceeds mankind's ability to explain by way of human reasoning, at least. We can't explain it. It is nonetheless received and fully affirmed by faith, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence. I like. I think it can just as well be uh, understood as evidence, but conviction of things not seen. One commentator gives us these concluding thoughts of our text it is impossible to explain such a mystery that the one who was on par with god could also be a human person to the fullest a truly genuine human being possessing all the potential for physical mental social and spiritual growth that is proper to humanity remember he started as a young boy right as a babe and then as a young boy Did he grow? Yeah, the scriptures tell us that he grew in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. Yes, he went through all of the steps of a human growing and learning and so forth. And yet, he was in every way God. Therefore, his humanity, as it were, veiled that part, that truth of his infinite being. So it is impossible to explain such a mystery that the one who was on par with God could also be a human person to the fullest, a truly genuine human being possessing all the potential for physical, mental, social, and spiritual growth that is proper to humanity. And be both at the same time, divine and human, God and human being. Here, of course, speaks the voice of creedal Christianity in the Chalcedonian overtones. And, of course, the Council of Chalcedon was uh, where a lot of this was uh, debated and uh, so forth and worked out ultimately. Nevertheless, the Philippian hymn seems clearly to set forth just such a paradox and affirm it, but does not try to explain it. Hence, anyone coming to the text in the hope of interpreting it must exercise the same kind of balance and reserve, neither tampering with anything relating to the divinity of Christ Messiah, nor calling into question any aspect of the reality of his humanity. Okay, uh, taking the form of a bond servant, lambone from lambano is the first of three participles that define the pouring out or the emptying of himself. And we have come, I think, to the end of our time tonight. So this is where we'll begin. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of the verse, I recognize, but it's a good uh, place to, uh, to break because now we're going to come to the three uh, aspects that talk to us about uh, the expression of his humanity. And I think that will be a great place for us to start, Lord willing, next week. Thank you again for coming and spending this time with us and I look forward to being with you next week as we continue our study in this epistle to the Philippians.